Well, hey, thanks. Thank you, Trisha, for, for taking the meeting. And thank you, Deanne, for the beautiful prayer. And um, welcome to people that are new here. Excited. Um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And um, so tonight we're going to discuss the family afterward. And, um, you know, one of the things um, that I generally, I, I try to do from time to time, especially before talking about a later chapter, um, is I, I try to um, give some foundational stuff about myself, um, you know, specifically my story. And, there, and, um, and the reason, you know, is because sometimes the later chapters, if you're new, if you're struggling, you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me yet. And um, what I wanna say is um, everything applies. There's something we can learn in every aspect of the big book. It's all applicable um, and it's all stuff that we can put into practical application at once. And um, I think the most important thing is when you're first starting is to come to a point where you know that not only are you gonna have to change the way you eat, obviously, right? Like we're like, okay, I'm gonna have to change the way I eat, but I'm gonna have to change the way I live. I'm gonna have to change. Basically, you know, my sponsor told me there's only one thing that you really need to change and that's you. <laughs> that's you, everything. Every aspect of you is what needs to change. Nothing in, nothing in your circumstances, nothing in your life, none of the people in your life, you, it's all gonna be on you. It's all you, you need to change. So um, with that being said, um, I wanted, you know, I'm gonna share my photos, which I also like to do from time to time, because I think it speaks about the necessity for change, right? That, that um, so, and the idea really, when you share your story, when you share your photos, it's because you wanna, um, you wanna demonstrate the power of this program that, that those of us who've recovered have, we're, I'm here because I've experienced a miracle. Like nothing but a miracle could have done this for me. And, um, and I think I'm blessed because I have a miracle that's a visible miracle that not, a lot of people have incredible internal shifts. I've got that too. But on top of that, I actually get to wear my miracle on my body all the time. And so that's, you know, that's what I'm supposed to carry to people coming in, that this is a program for people who must have a miracle. So this is what my miracle looks like. You know, this was me 21 years ago when my daughter was first born, um, really happy in love. I had this baby, like what could be better than having the baby that you were dying for, right? And yet that wasn't my solution because here I am in the pink, she got bigger and I got, and she got older and I got bigger, right? And my husband's still there, we were still in love, but so none of that helped me. Um, and this was us through the years, it just continued that way. Happy moments, always, most of the pictures were around the dinner table or around the eating out table, because I love to eat out. Um, because, you know, when food is your master, the master tells you what you like to do. And that was really it. I didn't know that I liked doing other things. And this it went on through the years. You know, sometimes 
in the red. I was having a party at my house that day. Certainly didn't look like I was having a party. Um, and in the green, I'm on a vacation, feeling really happy, but I was a bite away. I was actually a drink away. I had a drink on this vacation. And for me, alcohol is, um, is the gateway. It, I lose all inhibition. And I am not a person who needs to lose any inhibition. I certainly, I am uninhibited enough. I don't need any intoxication to lower the bar, the threshold for what's acceptable. And for me, um, I have never had a drink in my life that wasn't accompanied by chips, salsa, dip, you know, cheese. I never had wine without, unless it, oops, somebody's unmuted, unless it also included a pound of cheese. Like that's basically how I had a glass, glass of wine and a pound of cheese. Um, and here I am with my family, probably having a pound of cheese not far behind because there's a drink in my hand. And that, and those drinks that I had at family occasions um, was because I couldn't stand the experience of being me, of just being me. Um, I walked into every family gathering. Here I am with my sister and my sister-in-laws who love me. And I was itchy and uncomfortable on the inside because along with me showing up at that event, I brought with me every single resentment of everything that any of these wonderful people have ever done going back from when I was like three. That's how I showed up at every event. And by the way, if you're going into events with that in your pocket, with that in your heart, you're gonna find lots of reasons to be discontent. Because, um, you know, my family, I come from a big family, we're loud, we're opinionated, we're overbearing, we're too much, we're noisy. We're, I'm not the only one with an opinion. Everybody there's got an opinion. Um, and we step all over each other and they are perfectly, exactly how they're supposed to be. What needed to change was me, my perception of these people who loved me. Um, and that was me with my son. I had him um, after terrible losses in between my two children. I suffered terrible loss um, with the death of a child, many late pregnancy losses, and then the death of a living child. And so he was wanted more than anything in the world. And I was too obese to enjoy having this baby I wanted more than everything. Could barely get my arms around him and I couldn't keep up with him. And there he is, you could see his little face. He's already trying to look for how he's gonna get down. And I would cry because I couldn't keep up with this kid um, that I wanted more than anybody. And that's two side by sides. I love this because this to me is like, you wanna know what a miracle looks like? There's a miracle. There's a miracle. There was me when my son was a baby um, and just pain of morbid obesity, unable to get out of it. And there was me, you know, a few years later in a normal size, healthy body showing up. Um, and I've, you know, continued to be this size for a number of years. Um, in the gray dress, I was actually recovered there. My body hadn't caught up yet because I also, um, I had to not only become abstinent from alcoholic foods, but abstinent from insane schemes 
and crazy ideas. So I didn't diet to lose this weight. I'm abstinent and God took care of the weight problem. It, it just naturally happened following insane healthy way of eating. I surrendered my body to God. Um, and so what's wonderful about this photo is um, I know how I felt that day and all the resentments were gone. I did not need to drink any alcohol to stomach being me that day. I actually felt really good being me. I felt like the wall that had separated me from all the people I loved from all those years was gone. And I couldn't believe how it felt to show up that day even though my body hadn't caught up yet, I felt a hundred pounds lighter. I felt like I was thin. I felt free. Um, and that's me and my mom more recent, you know, we've aged. <laughs> There's me, um, you know, for the last number of years, every one of those dresses, I say, I have those dresses all in my closet. And every single one of those dresses fits me. And it's been a number of years that I can go in my closet very predictably pull out whatever it is, you know, in here. I was wearing one of them a year ago, that dress, um, I happened to pull it on. And here I am with some of my family members, the glass, you know, the glass in my hand is gone, the extra food on my plate is gone and the wall between us is also gone. Um, and here's two other side-by-side -side photos of me and my family. Um, and side-by-side -side of me and my husband. You know, um, just the change is unbelievable. And this is the yellow dress that I showed earlier on. This was Janet and I over the summer. We went to see a show together. And um, yeah, I pulled that dress out and it fit. And, and that's a miracle. So, okay. So what does that have to do with the family afterward? Which is the chapter we're going to discuss. Everything. It's got everything to do with that chapter because I didn't just have to change what I ate, I had to change the way that I engaged with my family, the way that I behave as a family member. And um, my sponsor tells me that everything that I learn in the rooms, I practice it in the rooms till I get it right and then I take it out. And then I take what I learned there and I bring it out to my family and I bring it out to my community. Um, to my workplace. So here I am, page 122 in the family afterward. Wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And this involves a process of deflation. So the whole family doesn't have to treat us with kid gloves. My family does not have to walk around me tiptoeing, afraid, you know, um, that I'm going to binge if they treat me like a regular family member. And our families don't have to hide their stash of candy or tiptoe around us. My family does not have to hide anything. Every, in fact, the funny thing is the room that I sit in to do this workshop. Um, a while ago, my son was complaining that he's like, he must've said something to my husband about candy or cookies in the house. And he said, do me a favor, dad, just hide it. Cause I'm eating too much of it. And I keep getting a stomach ache. And, um, and 
I saw my husband come in this room. My room is where they hide the stash, the room where I sit and do this, because that's the safest room in the house for food today, which is crazy, right? Crazy. Because um, they're like, they know it won't get eaten here. Um, so, you know, uh, in early abstinence, the people might in our lives might give us a free pass, right? They might tiptoe around us early on, but that should not last long. In a recovered state, you know, which is this afterward period that they're talking about, the family afterward, after what? After we're well, right? So after we're well, the family does not have to give us a free pass because in this recovered state, what happens is we become loving and tolerant parents, partners, sisters, brothers, spouses, etc. And I think it's important for us to look at the word tolerant, because if I am going to become tolerant, if that's my job now in this afterward period, um, it means that my threshold for what makes me uncomfortable must be diminished. Think about it like, it's not tolerance, like I'm going to stomach these people, like, ugh, I have to tolerate them somehow. But it's more like tolerance for my own discomfort when things are not going my way. And it's, I think about it like how we build up a tolerance to um, some of us to a medication or like they say, like, you know, people that use drugs, right? Over time, they require more to get an effect. And that's sort of what it's become for me with things that used to bother me my sensitivity to those things have become diminished. That's the tolerance. So I need to like increase my skin, my thickness of my skin. I don't feel everything quite as, as though it's affecting me personally. Um, you know, and so if that's the way that I'm gonna operate in this family, it means that my ego must be deflated. And, um, you know, we're sometimes referred to, my sponsor used to say when I would get upset over things, you know, she would say, this is king baby. What you're describing is king baby. And I think about it, what is a king baby? Well, it's an emotionally immature demanding ruler. It's me pounding on my high chair, like as if I'm the ruler of the family. And, um, you know, thinking that I'm self-important. And, you know, so I would say if, as you recover, if you notice that there might be more conflicts with your family members around you, perhaps it's because now they see that you're safer. Because maybe perhaps now you're more approachable. They're not as afraid that if they say something to you, it's going to set you off course. So don't be surprised that if, you know, suddenly your husband says to you, you know, I'm really, I don't really, it really upsets me when you do blank. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh my gosh, why am I doing blank so much? You might be, but it might also be, wow, my partner feels safer 
to express himself to me. And it kind of reminds me when my, when my daughter was little, she said to me one time, I was, I was disciplining her for something and I'm not heavy handed. I was just like, I must've said something to her in a stern voice. And she said, mommy, you scare me. And I was like, ah, what? And then I, I realized, and I said to her, no, honey, because children that are afraid of their mothers are afraid to tell their mothers that they're afraid of their mothers. And I think that's what happens when we get well. Suddenly the people around us can actually say to us, I don't like that, or please don't do that. And what do we have to do? We gotta get a thicker skin and look at ourselves, right? Look at our own behavior. Page 122. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. So let's look at what it means to concede, to admit defeat, to surrender. Well, geez, of course that's gonna lead to discourse, right? To disagreement, to lacking harmony and unhappiness. Because who wants to surrender? And by the way, who wants to surrender to a family member? Like it's one thing to surrender, to submit to the will of God. And it's the other thing to surrender and submit to the will of King Baby, right? Nobody wants to surrender to a family member. So we need to make sure that we don't demand this from our families, you know? And what does that mean for me? No more King Baby. Like I have to stop being the baby. And like, why, why is it not? Because each of us wants to play the lead. Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family rather than give? So I think about that paragraph and it makes me think about the stage director, right? They're calling it the family show. All right, so now I'm the stage director and I'm trying to arrange this family show. And I'm forever trying to arrange everything to my liking. Why, why would I do that? Is it because we want what's best for our families? Is it because I want what's best for my families? Yeah, sometimes yes. Yeah, sometimes that's the truth. But even that's flawed thinking because believing that I know what's best for my family and that I have all the answers. Like I'm the addict, remember? So what do I know really, right? And what I say is um, all I know is my perspective. All I know is how I view it from my spot on the stage, right? From my vantage point, all I know is the way that I see it. And here's what I found out. Everybody in the world has their own perspective. Everybody in the world has their vantage point, how they see it. And my problem is that I believe that my perspective is factual rather than just perspective. And most of the time, the rest of the world believes the same thing, right? We all believe that the way that we're seeing it from our vantage point is truth and there's no other side to it. And what I have to do is I've got to like invite humility in because really, I don't even know how much food to eat. <laughs> like at the end of the day, I have to put my berries on a scale, 
Like that's, that for me is a big, aha, uh -huh. have to have some humility here. What makes me think that I know factual when I don't even know how much to feed this 53 year old body, right? Um, you know, so sometimes though, if I'm being entirely honest here, I'm not even concerned with what's best for others. Like that's the truth. In a family, oftentimes I just want things my own way because I want it my own way because it's going to be best for me or what I believe is best for me. And, you know, sometimes I just want what I want because I want it. And in recovery, what I found out is I can't live that way anymore. Can't live that way. That can't be my guiding principle. You know, I have to look at the world now from an entirely different angle. I must be rid of this selfishness. It says, or it will kill me. It's deadly for me. Remember that selfishness is the root of our troubles. That's what we're told. It's the root of our troubles. And in how it works on page 62, it discusses this. It says, above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. So it says here, you know, that um, so much of this is really happening on an almost like an unconscious level, right? This, this selfishness, this thing that we can't get rid of. And it's like, we don't even realize that that's the way we're operating. Um, it's not necessarily deliberate. So then how can we work around this if it's not deliberate? Well, I would say for myself um, that I'm a person who needs a miracle, right? I need a miraculous intervention and people who need miraculous interventions pray. So I pray and I ask God for help to be open to his direction. And in the chapter into action on page 86, it says, before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity dishonesty or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. So if I want to improve my relations with my family, then I'm going to pray for them. And not pray for them that they're going to bend to my will not pray for an outcome for them, right? Or that they suddenly see the light, right? Which is usually the light I want them to see, right? I'm not gonna pray that they suddenly start seeing it from my perspective, but my prayer is that I can be more useful for them. That's it, that I, and more useful for them. And so um, I know Trish is gonna put in the chat box because I've got a whole series of prayers that I say um, for my family members. And if you, know, if you have anybody in your world that you struggle with, start praying for them. Start praying differently for them than you have in the past. Um, and I'm a lover of 
creating my own prayers. I'm a little bit of a stealer of prayers. So I go on Google. I have gone on Google. I have typed in prayer for husband. I've taken it. I've read it. I'm like, oh, I like this. I like that. I like that. I tweak them. I change them. I put my own spin on it. Um, and then they're mine, right? And I do that for lots of things. Um, so here are the prayers. I'm going to share them. Um, here's the one I have for my husband. Thank you, God, for my husband. And I say his name. May he be a man of love and purpose. May he feel your love and mine. Give him wisdom and peace. Continue to guide him and me as we lead our family with love, strength, grace, patience, and peace. Free him from worry and grant him your peace. Direct his thoughts and his vision so that he sees the beauty and the good. Direct my thoughts and my vision so that I see the beauty and the good in him. And let me see him through your eyes. Teach me to be the partner you designed me to be. That's my prayer for my husband. And then here's a bunch of ones I have for my kids. Um, dear God, thank you for assigning me this role as mother. You've blessed me with people who I admire and adore. My children are the beautiful gifts of your all-powerful creation. Thank you for giving their spirits and mine this time to be together here on earth. I know our earthly time is finite and not a moment should be wasted. I often find myself attempting to advise and direct. I say things to try to fix and it gets met with pushback. God help me refrain from this behavior. I'm far more useful when I don't pretend to know the answers. Give me the strength to just listen and offer love. And God help me to set boundaries and guidelines and then continue to give me the strength to honor and respect the rules that I set forth. Teach me how to lovingly discipline and how to tolerate the discomfort of my children's discomfort. I want a parent without fear. And dear God, for today, help me to lovingly connect with my children. Give me the right words the right demeanor, and the compassion needed to fulfill the awesome role you've assigned me. And then here's another, God, forgive me where I have not been sensitive to my children's hurt and need for nurture, protection, care, and guidance. I come to you in utter desperation, fear, and longing for my child. Help me to deal with my emotional reactions and confusion so I will do no harm. Open my heart toward the heart of my child. Help me be objectively sensitive to her needs and of her pain and give me insight into the reality of the world she lives in and what she has to encounter daily. I submit myself to you, God, embracing faith, hope, and love for the assignment of being a parent to this child. And that was one that I started saying when I was really going through a tremendous, difficult period with um, my daughter, which thank you, God, we have 
survived that one. Um, and, you know, now on to the next. But at that time, that was like the most difficult period of my life. And I was stepping all over her and me and my principles. And, um, and I really started saying this prayer with, um, with intensity, you know? Um, and so here's another one that I've had for a, a child that had a lot of anxiety. I said, dear God, worry, fear, and doubt. Because by the way, when you have a child who's suffering with anxiety or depression or anything that you can't control, it's terrifying. Um, and, and because you can't control it. And that's what I found out. I couldn't force somebody to stop feeling what they were feeling, right? I couldn't do anything, but I could pray. I could pray. And so it was, dear God, worry, fear, and doubt have been surrounding my child. His young heart weighed down with anxiety and stress. Yet I know that you are with us. I can hear you and I can feel you. Oh, my creator, please allow my sweet child to hear you and feel you as well. Allow him to feel your presence surrounding him. Free him from worry, fear, and doubt. Remove him from the bondage of anxiety and stress. And may he feel the comfort of your love. And um, so those were, you know, I know I just gave a lot of my prayers, but those really helped me. And I think that... Um, was one of the greatest ways that I changed in this program, was that really um, giving those things over to God rather than trying to carry the weight of those things on my own back, things that I was not equipped to solve and do much about. Um, but I could demonstrate my faith for them. And I think that was one of the greatest gifts that I actually gave my children, was that they have a mother who has faith, who believes. Page 122 says, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. So the entire family is to some extent ill. And so here's what it means to be neurotic. Abnormally sensitive, obsessive, tense, and anxious. So when you live with someone who's unpredictable, up and down, wildly excited, and then terribly depressed, it causes the family to be tense. You know, and for me, in a very simplistic way, one of the ways that I made my family very tense was I would swear off foods forever. I would tell everybody what they were forbidden from having in the house. And I would take everybody's food and throw it out. I didn't care if it was something that they wanted, if they liked, if they could enjoy it, it all went in the trash. When I was starting something, everything went in the trash and I demanded that it never be brought in the house again. And I made my husband promise me that he wasn't going to let me, let me, right? Don't let me eat blank, right? And then here's what I did because, you know, I'm an addict. I started eating those things, right? The things that I told him he couldn't let me eat. But because I made such a big production out of not bringing it in the house, I couldn't do it in the house. So basically now I made my house a food-free a food zone. So I hid. 
I didn't come home. I drove around in the car on pretend errands, right? Pretend errands so that I could binge in my car. And then I had to hide all my evidence of it from him. And then finally would come the point where I was like, forget it, I can't hide it anymore. And I would just bring it in the house and I would start, you know, I couldn't keep from hiding it. And God help him if he so much as looked at me and said, are you eating that now? I would lo- I would go crazy on him. Don't tell me what to eat or, you know, don't, you know, are you calling me fat and you're supposed to love me for who I am? And it made these people nuts. And I did this over and over and over again. So when you live with someone who's unpredictable, wildly excited and then terribly depressed, doing all this craziness, um, you make the people around you question your your safety, right? You're not a safe family member for him. Um, you know, and the addict is overly sensitive and relies on things going their way, which is bad enough. But even worse, when the going our way changes from one minute to the next. Like it's one thing if I could say, okay, it all has to be this way for me. That might be unkind. But if every week it's a new direction, holy smokes, like no wonder why, you know, the family starts behaving in ways that are neurotic. It's like you made them that way right? You made them that way. And I think it's especially true for moms, you know, no disrespect for dads, but generally the moms set the temperature for the family. When mom is healthy, the family has a better chance of being healthy. When mom is sick, it's real hard for a family to be healthy and well. It just is. Um, Page 123, the second paragraph says, it will take time to clear away the wreck. The old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones. The new structures will take years to complete. Years, years, holy smokes. Not months, not weeks, not I've been abstinent three months. Why don't they appreciate me? No, years. So what does that tell me? I better be patient. If what I'm building is gonna take years, I have to be patient and I better be diligent. Patient, yep, for the family to notice and acknowledge the changes. Because my family did not say, oh my gosh, you're amazing today, right? What I got instead was my daughter saying, you scare me, right? That's how it happens first, right? Because I'm now I'm a safer space to, to at least say that in front of, you know, and, and so patient for my family to notice and acknowledge the changes and patient for my own consistencies in changing. Like, I'm not gonna change overnight. We're still, we're making progress. This is, you know, when we talk about progress, not perfection, that's what we're talking about. Not in my food, not in my eating. We don't make progress in our eating, right? We're abstinent or we're not but we make progress in our relationships with our families. And what replaces the wreck is the result of our amends, our living amends, not the grumblings of I'm sorry, right? Or even these melodramatic promises to change, 
these big tear filled, like, oh my God, I'm terrible. I want to be better. You know, okay. No, that doesn't convince anybody. That doesn't do it. Um, but it's the living amends. It's the in, in the dirt, in, you know, on the ground, doing the work. As we live our amends, things are going to be better than before. They get even better than before. On page 123, the fourth paragraph, it says the first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. So what are the dark skeletons? The mistakes that we've made in the past, the big, awful, horrible things we've done. And our impulse is to like hide it. Like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. That was the past is the past is the past. Let's lock the door, pretend it never happened and let's just get on, right? Um, but like, remember, we're not slaves to our impulses anymore. That might be my impulse, but I don't live by impulses any longer, right? We know that there is something powerful that happens when we pause, when we don't act on our impulses, but when we pause. So we don't, we don't hide our mistakes along the way. Page 124 says, experience is the thing of supreme value in life. And that is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. So we make a mistake and we wanna look at it. We wanna look at our mistakes and then take it and convert it into assets. And the alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently it is almost the only one. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And I just love that. That to me is just one of the most beautiful promises of this program. Um, okay, we're gonna get better lives than the ones we even had prior to having a problem, right? Even, even before things got really dark for us, whatever life we had before, we're gonna get an even better one. And all the garbage of the past, all the terrible things we've done, all those things, we don't have to be ashamed and hide them. We don't have to bury them into the closet. We don't have to hide the truth of our experiences, even the bad ones, why? because our experience can save people's lives. People are dying from this disease. They're out there, they're here, they're dying, they're struggling. And it's our past, the story of our past, if we're brave enough to tell it and show it, can help save these people's lives. And what that tells me is that my experiences even the horrifying ones are nothing to be ashamed of. It wasn't wasted. None of it was a waste. That God takes the trash, right? The way that I was living before, he takes the trash and reshapes it 
and repurposes it and turns it into something good. And I think like what an incredible gift we get here that we can avert, prevent and ward off death and misery. My dark past today is my treasure. It is absolutely the treasure of my life. And I can say this because any time that I have shared some of the deepest, darkest, like most painful things that I've experienced and done, I generally have someone hear it and say, holy smokes, I'm going through the same thing. Or I know someone who's going through the same thing. And so I'm no longer enslaved to that way anymore. Right. And so it's hopeful for other people who are walking through it to know that there is a way out. And here's the benefit of it. It helps other people and it helps us too. Right. People want to know, how is it that you can go through things and not pick up? How is it you've consistently been able to live recovered no matter what's going on in your life? How is it? It's that. That is the only, that is it. The only immunity we have is intensive work with others, is honest, in the weeds, work with other people. That's the only thing. And I'll tell you, you know, um, for those of you who've known me, I've been sick the last week. I've had COVID. I felt like crap. And somehow I've been able to etch out. God gave me the strength to work with people during this time. I don't know it. And every time I felt, like, oh, I can't stand it. And I lost, a, I lost a dear colleague and friend this week too. A friend died this week and um, I've been really sad and feeling lonely about it and grieving alone because all my work friends are together and I can't be at work. Actually, I want to be there. I can't be at work to be with my people because I'm sick. And the only thing that has really carried me through, I love my family. They're awesome. They're great. They're not you guys. <laughs> It's this work that has carried us through. So it's, this is, this is what averts death and misery for ourselves and for others. Um, this chapter is so incredibly rich. I'm going to like do one other little section. And then on Monday, I'm going to finish it up. But um, on page 124, it says, it is possible to dig up past misdeeds. So they become a blight a veritable plague. A few of us have had these growing pains and they hurt a great deal. We think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. So, you know, before I was just talking about how the skeletons of the closet can be, should not be shoved in the closet, but, but should be shared if they're put to good use. And here it's saying, wait a second, don't dig up everything because if you're digging it up to rub other people's noses in it, best to keep it where it is. And they're really talking here. They were really speaking in that part of the chapter about infidelities, you know, but it can also be applied to many other areas of behaviors. You know, if, if there were stealing or drug use involved or fits of rage, digging up those things, picking apart the open scabs that are healing just because we can 
right? Just because we can doesn't necessarily mean that we should. And if we say, if the people in our world ask for forgiveness, right? And we are working through our processes with people and we've forgiven people and they've forgiven us. Bringing things up just because we can is hurtful and it's best to leave it to rest. And then we're told if forgiveness is difficult, then just like all situations, we pray, right? We pray for the person or the situation. So the family afterward is really kind of helping me discern what things I share and what things are best to be left, you know, sleeping. What dogs do I lie sleeping? And generally for myself, I would say, if it involves my misdeeds and it doesn't embarrass or humiliate my family, I can bring it up. But if it involves their misdeeds, hell no, right? Not mine to dig up, not mine to take out and look so that other people can grow from it. It's not mine, it's not my mess, right? Mine own I can if it doesn't hurt them. So um, I always, always wanna leave time um, for questions. So I'm gonna stop, we're gonna stop the 